analog linguist, high fidelity aficionado, record label guy, DJ turned music supervisor, and Emmy nominee Zach Cowie sits down with Audio Streams Ray Farnot and myself, Brian Hunter, to discuss the state of the music industry, vinyl versus digital, human track progression, and the dangers of algorithms choosing what we hear. Hey everybody, thanks for joining us. A very special guest here, a trio of delightfulness, Zach Howie, Ray Farnot. How are you boys doing? Very good. You ready to get this thing going? Happy to be here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for bringing me to this shady hotel room. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're actually in the uh, secret headquarters of Stereofar, far below the surface of the earth right now. So it's a little warm down here, but we'll get the AC going. But acoustically tuned. I did tell my friends the room number in case they never see me again. <laughs> And that is a very smart move. <laughs> Anything to do with an audiophile show. So uh, just to kind of kick it off, I was, Zach, uh, I think a lot of our listeners might be familiar with the different elements of of uh, movie making, uh, audio. There, there, there are you know sound designers. There are people who make musical scores. You have kind of a unique job within that field. I was just wondering if you give us the lowdown on that. Yeah, I'm what uh, I'm what they call a music supervisor. So I work in film, television, and advertising. In all three of those fields, there are two types of music. One is score. That's something that a composer makes specifically for the work. Uh, the other is source music, and that is music that existed already that we license and put into something. So I'm, I'm a person who, you know, when you hear the Rolling Stones in something, I'm the guy who picks that. So it's it's a lot easier than being a composer, <laughs> and uh, I'm not gonna lie that that sounds like a dream job. <laughs> That's what everybody says till they do it. Oh yeah, <laughs> is, it, is it? What's what are the hard parts about it? Um, let's dive right in, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> there's there's I mean with anything there's a lot of politics. Yeah. Um, one of the the best ways that I can describe the problems with my job. Um, in the, I think it's the NBC Universal office, I saw a sign once in their music department that said, I'm going to paraphrase this, but it's like, directors direct, actors act, writers write, producers produce, but everyone's the music supervisor. Mm. And that's it. You know, everybody um, has an opinion about music. And since this can truly be any song, mm. I tend to hear the opinions from everyone. <laughs> I, I once saw a quote for uh, just like job titles in this in a, in a magazine where they said, uh, there's a guy who was like a writer for The Simpsons and he, and he got paid like, I don't know, $250,000 a year. And, and they were like, how is this? I mean, you must be so good. He's like, my job is not to be a writer. The reason I get paid $250,000 a year is not because I'm a good writer. It's because I navigate people. That's right. Making everybody work. Yeah. I also write, but my main job is yes. navigating this landscape. Yes. And, and, you know, I, I, there, it changes from project to project. There's some stuff that I've worked on where, uh, you know, there are people that, that, that really put a lot of trust in me and, and I can truly do whatever I want. Then there's some stuff that I work on where I'm filtering like 12 people's opinions at all times. Mm. And then there's the, you know, the dark side of this job is, uh, is managing all the money and dealing with all the licensing. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I had a, a pretty long run in the record business before I did this. So that has made this part, that part a little easier for me because I kind of know how to find where the bodies are buried, as we always say. You know, if it was on this label, I know who owns that at this point, that kind of thing. So there's a lot of that involved. Um, 
And 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 even even when we the the people I'm making it with, even when we get it to a certain point, then it get, gets over to the network, then it gets over to the studio, the the whole deal. So you are just uh, constantly running defense on trying to protect the good ideas. Mm -hmm. That's my job. Gross. While while trying to like tell a story with the music, you know. How, as far as the job goes in that sense, what do you think you, as far as experience goes, how, how do you think you ended up there? Like, what was it that you brought to the table where people were like, yes, let's make Zach supervisor on this? I think uh, that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, because what, what you guys said earlier where, you know, I explained what it is and you're like, that's the dream job. That is the, you know, that's how people think about music supervision. So I get asked a lot no joke every day somebody finds my email and it's like i i'm very passionate about music what do i do to do this yeah. and i'm like delete <laughs> <laughs> actually no joke if i see the word passion i'm like trash <laughs> trash <laughs> such an empty word uh i think you know i i never um i never envisioned getting here i've always i i was like i wanted to get into filmmaking when i was young and got totally sidetracked into the music business. So it's something that I've, I'm very, I've always been paid a lot of attention to, the way people use music in movies. Um, but I, I really got here because I stopped being able to do what I do best in the record business. You know, my, my whole thing, like since I was a kid, is just turning people on to music. And, you know, I started working at record stores, then labels. I've been a DJ for like 20 years. You know, I do this to turn people on to stuff that I think is important. And when the label game changed so much, especially when digital came in, um, you know, they leave all that to algorithms now, not people. Mm -hmm. um, I found like a very natural segue into film and TV uh, because it really is the new place where you can like truly curate music and turn people on. Yeah, well. And and even. Um, even when the music business was at its best, it's nowhere near the number of people that watch some of these shows. Um, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm very, uh, very, a lot of my friends are musicians. Like I, I tour managed for a long time too. So I, I'm always really conscious about getting those people paid and getting people who make music paid. And there is no better direct route to do that than my job. Mm. You know, I can, I can give significant, <laughs> significant amounts of money to musicians that I really care about. Mm. And, and another thing to answer your question, I, I think um, ever since I was young, I've been interested in just all music. You know, I just love, I, I don't know where this came from, but when I was really young, I got almost obsessed with being able to hold a conversation about anything in music, mm. whether it was my favorite or not. I really enjoyed the the kind of task of getting my head around something right so you you do that long enough with enough different types of music and you kind of see that it's all related and that weird <laughs> path that i went on that's the most valuable thing uh when it comes to my job now you know because because mm -hmm. the the project will tell you what the sound is going to be like like Anytime I read a new script, my mind is blank. You know, I, I start looking at this thing, looking at what the characters are into, looking at the references, and then the sound is formed, 
And because of all this research I've done collectively through my life, I can, I've got a decent starting point for most things. And, um, that's, that's the most important thing you can do if you, if you're interested in doing this job is to stop thinking about genres, stop thinking about any restrictions and just start absorbing all music. Cause the, that's the vocabulary for this job. And the more, you know, the quicker you're going to get in there. So growing up, I mean, it seems like you had a pretty organic path into what you're doing now. Yeah. You kind of just like ended up on a route and then you ended up where you are. I I can say with, with, with a hundred percent certainty that everything I've ever tried to do has been a mistake. Mm. And everything that just showed up is the best thing that's ever happened to me. But that's not something that people can recognize either. Some people it's just, true. yeah. It's so true. you're probably lucky in that sense or, gif- or gifted. I'll go with lucky. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was going to ask you, was there, was there any film or television shows that you used to watch when you were a kid that you were just like, you totally vibed with and yeah. that was sort of like, in a sense, what you heard on the show kind of became a bit of a soundtrack to your own life? Absolutely. Um, I, I don't know. I thought I was... Can I swear on this? Mm-hmm. I was like, I thought I was kind of a hot shit kid and was into, uh, <laughs> was into like movies that were so over my head, but like I loved trying them. Um, so I, I got obsessed with Hal Ashby when I was in high school. And uh, the, one of the first times that I was like, wow, you can really do something with music and movies uh, was, was the film Coming Home that um, closes with uh, Once I Was by Tim Buckley. And it was just, you know, what, what best case scenario in this job is you combine one thing, which is the picture, and the other thing, which is the sound, to create a third thing that you've, like, never felt before, right? And that one hit me so hard, and I was like, I think I can do this. Um, and then, you know, I'm, I'm 38, so obviously, like, you know, when Bottle Rocket and Rushmore came out, I was like, oh, whoa, there's, there's music that I like in these That things. was going to be one of my yeah. questions for you. Yeah. Rush, Rushmore for me is one that really stands undeniable, out. Undeniable. Undeniable. And then, you know, the, all the Scorsese stuff, like... Casino. Know, and I, I was always obsessed with the street fighting man thing and mean streets. Like, those, they're just cool. <laughs> and then I, uh, I just naturally started to do that when I was listening to music I, I, I started to just kind of get visuals from it and and I'd remember them you know if there was something that clicked like that it just went into this weird memory bank that I have and every once in a while I'm working on a project and I'll see something that's familiar and it reminds me of a song that I've thought of before in a situation like that it's a very weird job <laughs> here's, here's something though well, 180 if you will what about the use of silence I love silence and the the dare i say the better i get at my job uh the more silence i try to incorporate um there but you know again it's project by project but um you know my my one of my favorite movies last year was was roma that had no score and it was my favorite score of the year <laughs> uh, another movie that blew me away is shoplifters that um this guy hosono harumi that i love is just one of the greatest Japanese composers, he made like four minutes of music for the whole movie. It's all they needed. You know, it, again, the story will always dictate what the sound's supposed to be, but if you get a story that's good enough, you don't need to save it with music, you know? Um, there was a, a show I worked on for Amazon called Forever, 
And I did that right after Master of None. And Master of None was just like music, 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 music. And I got so into the idea of, of going from everything to nothing. So mm-hmm. forever is like the most <laughs> minimalist music supervision job ever. I can't believe they let me do it. And, uh, you know, I'll, I, I think most people would have a hard time distinguishing the score from the source stuff I did. I just wanted it to all kind of sound like nothing. I was going to say, Master of None is one of those shows, I, when I was watching it, I, I didn't know you at all, but I, I, it had a, feel, a feeling to me where it was like a, a living, breathing thing, the soundtrack, to, it was part yeah. of the show, it's yeah. almost like a character, and um, I don't know if you've seen it or not, Interstellar. I love Interstellar. The, to me, right off the bat, I've seen it in the theater and experiencing that those huge organ notes, yeah, man. The, the soundtrack to that was also something, it felt like a character in the film itself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Master of None was, I mean, it was like, we always joke like that's a, a lot of my friends. We all made that together, and uh, I always we all always joke that if that was the best time in our lives, we're all totally cool with that. You know, <laughs> like I'm <laughs> I'm fine with things being downhill from here because that was so fun, and and I think I start I've started to realize why it was so well received is is we all just got to be ourselves on that. You know, like Aziz, that's Aziz. Alan, that's Alan. Eric, that's Eric. The, the music, that's just me. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a lot easier to be yourself in something than to have to play something. And I, I uh, yeah. So it's totally cool if that never happens again. <laughs> Speaking of going downhill, I mean, you're here with us now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with my real community now, guys. I was going to segue a little bit uh, on that one. Just to the fact that we are at an audiophile trade show. We connected here today to sort of um, touch on that a little bit. Your music background, you're an avid record collector, I, maybe rabbit even. I just, we wanted to touch a little bit on how you ended up sort of going from the having a sort of a single minded focus of collecting and acquiring yeah. to the playback and listening. Mm-hmm. Well, I, um, you know, the, the record collecting thing just consumed me from like the second it started, which was uh, like, I think I was 15 when I started to kind of really get into it. Um, and I only, I always just had whatever system was around, like, um, which, which I got lucky. Like my first pieces were like decent. My first turntable was like a Thorns 160, which is That's very totally decent. cool, you know, <laughs> yeah. but I was also a DJ. So most of my listening was done through pair of 1200s and like a pioneer mixer and like speakers i had no idea i just used i mean i i would pull stuff out of the trash and use it um because i was so consumed by like finding these records and and most of the playing that i was doing was in clubs so i didn't totally need something of my own you could just show up yeah i could show up with the bag of records um but uh when I was right about to turn 30, um, I had to quit drinking, <laughs> which uh, was a, a little problem in my life before that. And a very strange thing happened where um, I was kind of living with clarity for the first time ever. And at that exact moment, given the opportunity to hear my first crazy system, uh, Joel Bernstein, you guys know him? a really amazing Bay Area photographer and archivist. He, he took the cover of like Joni Mitchell Blue. Mm-hmm. He was, he's the archivist for Joni, for um, 
I think Stephen Stills, like all those guys. He was also uh, Prince's guitar tech for a long time. <laughs> so rad. Serious crap. Yeah. 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 That's serious. Joel, yeah. Joel is such a mind-blowing dude. And uh, there was a band that I used to tour with who, who became friends with him. And um, I was up in the Bay Area, and they're like, we're going to go to Joel's. You should come by, and we can listen to records. And I have no idea what I heard system-wise, but it was the first thing I heard that was legit, right? That combined with not being drunk for the first time in like 12 years, uh, that, that moment changed everything for me. And uh, I, w- I, I, I was almost embarrassed at what I'd, what I'd been listening to before and the fact that I had all these insane records and I'd never really heard them. <laughs> so it was, around that time too, I got very into... Um, into this guy David Mancuso, who um, was Loft a, was the, the DJ at the Loft. Um, who, I mean, it's kind of fun to teach the audiophile crowd about him because I think he might be a little lost in. In it. he's sort of kind of straddling a bunch of worlds, but he was a very influential DJ. Like, it's arguable that there'd be no dance music culture the way we know it now without this guy. But he was also an audiophile, and he used to DJ. You know, he wouldn't mix records at all. He just had two, I think, Thorns, I think he was using like 125s or something. I can't remember. Koetsu cartridges and Klipshorn speakers. Mm-hmm. And he would just play full songs, no blending, whatever. All-nighters and, you know, everyone who developed that culture started by hearing him. So I started to read a lot about him and get really into um, just what he was doing, and Clipshorn came up everywhere. First thing I did was found a pair of Klipsch Heresies, and I was like, oh, wow, this this is happening. <laughs> were, were they the originals or twos or threes? Uh, my first pair were twos. Okay. Uh, Mine as well. Yeah. <laughs> Still, I, I, I'm, I don't think there's better value in any of this stuff than a used pair of Heresies for 600 bucks, man. Yep, and I was using an ad 3020 amp that I got for mm-hmm. 100 bucks. I, I was using a, like a Marantz 1060 that some dude gave me. That <laughs> 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 dude I love, by the way, a guy I used to work at Rhino with. Uh, um, but so then I started to get real hot for the, for the idea of a clip showing. And when I... I guess a year after I heard Joel's stuff, uh, I saw a pair of, of Clipshorns on Craigslist in Palm Springs. And if you guys play the Craigslist game, you'll kind of understand um, that you can tell how much somebody knows about something by the way they describe it. And this was straight up listed as like big speaker. <laughs> so, so I was like, please print huh. truck. Yeah. So I was like, this guy might not know. And the price was like reasonable. And I just kept on looking at the ad and kept on looking at it. And then I remember on New Year's Day, I saw that the ad had a number on it. So I texted a ridiculously low number to that phone number. And I was like, this much cash, I can pick them up today. And then the guy wrote back and he's like, okay. And I was like, oh shit. <laughs> Now I have to get a truck. I have to like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> need somebody to help. So, so I, I, I ditched my car at a U-Haul. I was living in Venice at the time in like a little beach house. Drove out to Palm Springs, was totally in shock at how huge these things were. Mm-hmm. Got them back to Venice and they didn't fit in my house. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
so I, I, I brought them to one of my best friend and often DJ partner's house. I was like, dude, I got clip shorns. They don't fit in my house. Can we keep them in your guest house? We set them up in there and like, you know, song one changed both of our lives. And I ended up moving uh, to a loft downtown so that I could have my speakers. And then it's been like crazy town ever since. How many years ago was that? That was like eight years ago. Um, and I've had one million pieces of gear since then. <laughs> yeah, we've talked a little bit uh, previously just to kind of about the um, the progression that you've yeah. gone through. Can you run us through maybe some of that? Yeah. Cliff, I th- Cliff's notes? Yeah, I think, um, I think most people in this community kind of have experienced kind of like this, the steps of knowledge with this, right? It's like, like a quick way in, if you're like looking from the outside, you're like, Oh, Macintosh. Like I see that in all the right places, all the right kind of dudes. And you know, it's vintage, which I, I, I personally like the idea of something having like decent resale value, especially when I was getting my feet wet and figuring out what I wanted. It was really important to me that I could flip stuff if it wasn't working. Right. So I went straight for Macintosh stuff, and I love Macintosh stuff. I had like a, a C20, a C22, a 110, uh, the, all those preamps for amps. I had a pair of 30s, a 225. Um, I'm, st- some, I'm still craving a pair of MC30s. Dude, 225 is my favorite. I know, you said that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, got all that stuff, loved it, sounded amazing with my K-horns. But then, you know, I'm, that's, now I'm one foot in. And then I start hearing about single-ended amps, you know? <laughs> and then yeah, I, I started with some kind of bigger brands, and then I get another foot in, and then I find out about boutique brands. <laughs> and, then, and, you know, now I'm here with, like, all Shindo, you know? Yeah, that seems to be a place a lot of serious people land. Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay. Especially, yeah, they go down the hole, and then yep. th- that's where you come out. Yeah, yeah. But, but it is. It's something that it's a whisper, and then each step you take, it gets a little louder. It's yeah. a little louder. And, uh, but I, man, I'm so happy I found yeah, this. Yeah, it's not the Cheshire Cat, though. It's Matthew Rotunda. That's right. That's <laughs> <laughs> my, my dealer. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> How about we talk a little bit about, um, I know that you and I have talked about this a little bit before, but just a little bit about cl- your collection as far as albums go. Yeah. You, you've, you've mentioned before not to get caught up in genres. That's right. How would you describe your collection? I just good records. That's that's what I'm after. Um, I mean, naturally, just when you have this much stuff, you do have to come up with ways to organize it, which do fall victim many times to genre mm-hmm. ideas and the alphabet. Yeah. <laughs> so my stuff, um, the sections that they're all in, sort of make more DJ sense than anything. Like I'm, I'm a big jazz collector, big classical collector, like all that stuff is separate because that doesn't come to a club, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So just for the for the ease of pulling a bag of records, that's how my stuff is separated, right? And then all alphabetized within it. But but something I'm really aware of is the fine line between collecting and hoarding. And and I know myself and I know I get out of control. So I kind of set up some parameters. Like I, I really kind of Marie Kondo style. Like, <laughs> like for Which real. My girlfriend like, is just done to our entire place. <laughs> like if I can, if I pull out a record on the shelf, I need to know why I have it. Mm. And if I don't, it's gone. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but, but do you thank it before you throw it away? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Very ceremonially. And to get what the collector will call a hard file, that's a term in our world, it's got to be in like killer shape and a good record. Like I don't keep beaters. I don't keep the stuff people send me. Like, sorry, everyone. <laughs> I need it to all be there for a reason. And, and, and I like having the amount that I have now, and I'll probably have this amount forever. What's that at right now, you figure? It's like 10. 10, yeah. yeah. 10 records? 10 records. <laughs> 10,000 And they're records. all like how to set up a turntable record. That's right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> From Urban Outfit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's talk a little bit about digital versus analog. One of the things that um, that I've often found is that people seem to think you have to be in one camp or the other. Do you, do you feel that a need for that, or do you feel... I think, you know, my definitive answer to this battle is whatever it takes to get people to listen to the most music mm-hmm. is the right answer. And for me, I've been lucky enough that I was heavily, heavily collecting records from a very young age. Um, and the the... The r- simple reason why I'm not interested in digital is because of how many records I have, right? Mm-hmm. And and at this point, you know, I'm looking f- for really deep discoveries and then new things that are good enough. And I do a, a ton of that research digitally, just in my headphones, on the computer. Yeah. And if it passes the test, the record comes home, mm-hmm. right? Then it's about tracking it down. Yeah, but but I do no digital listening in my in my... For serious in, listening. As, as me and my friends call it, Studio A at my house. <laughs> <laughs> me, I got, I've got hi-fi buddies, and, and a lot of us have two systems, so mm. we give them names. My house has Studio A and Studio B. Like so. Very BBC. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, my, my friend Amir's system, his, his main one we call the Layer, and his other one we call the Disco Den. <laughs> <laughs> Does he have his album separated like that too? Yes. Nice. Shouts to Amir. He's probably on the fourth <laughs> floor right now. <laughs> Choosing music from a record collection. I know when I'm going through picking out several albums, if we've got people over, mm-hmm. it's a completely different process that's, than running through the yeah, iPad or anything like that. That's what I like about it. I, I, I like... Um, it's not an algorithm. I, I hate algorithms, guys. Um, I think they're going to destroy us all. And uh, I love just throwing like a hint of chaos into something. And that, and that's what I love about the physical media. I, and it happens to me all the time and it's so cool. And it's something I have a lot of respect for is, you know, I'll wake up in the morning, make my coffee, start walking around looking for something to play. There's some reason why something jumps out at me. And there's been so many instances where a reminder of that thing that jumped out ends up really helping me down the line. Hmm. Like I, that show forever that I was talking about, I, I, it's like a big thing for me. I love coffee, so I wake up, make my coffee. How, how long do the amps stay on for before you <laughs> play something? Right when I wake up, I flip them on. <laughs> and, uh, and, and usually it's like a jazz record that goes on or like a classical record. But I like just pulled out a Miles Davis record. I've got like, I don't know, 30 Miles Davis records. And playing the record, a song came on, it caught my attention, and I was like, oh, weird. And I went over and I ended up playing it three times, right? And months later, I get pitched a story for a show, and the sound of that story is that song. 
But I wouldn't have remembered that song if that moment didn't happen months before. And, uh, and it was kind of an amazing thing. We, ba- we based the way this entire television show sound off that one song. And I'm convinced I wouldn't have remembered it if I didn't have that strange moment months before. Well, you had said earlier, like, you'll do digital listening maybe to, to find something that could be a deep dive find an album that's a deep oh, dive. Oh, Is that no, type of referencing a deep dive? No, no, not at all. Not at all. Like, um, I, I guess deep dive, I mean, like, I've just spent so much time finding stuff and all my f- best friends do it too. Mm-hmm. So for for one of us to get excited at this point, it takes something so bizarre. <laughs> right, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's not so much a, an emotional moment. That's no, 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 a, no, no. A deep no. dive trigger. It, deep dive is is like... You know, well, I love Brazilian music and I love Brazilian psychedelic music, but what did that sound like in the 80s? Like, you know, like that, that's, <laughs> that's the path that me and my maniac friends are on at all times. So. What, uh, what's been turning your crank these days? What's the bent? Um, Can you talk about it? <laughs> there, oh, man. I, I, uh, well, I got a new pair of speakers. Um, I finally cracked and got my dream speakers, some Devor 096s. Fantastic Which speakers. I've wanted forever. Yeah. But I um, put a mental block around them because because <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, man, I can get... And I did. I can get really close to that. Like after the Klipsch thing, I got very into Altec and modifying yeah. crossovers on 604s. 604s. I had Valencia's for a long time. I love Valencia's. Um, and, and, you know... It's a it's a game of diminishing returns. I was able to get to like nine point three with that stuff. Mm-hmm. The the divorce for me was the ten, and uh, I have a friend who has a pair who went out of town for a month or something. He's like, you should borrow my O nine sixes when I'm gone. And I was like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> and I put them in my house, and then I called Matt the next day. <laughs> and I was like, I need these. What do we have to do? Uh, so so I I have these new speakers. So I'm I'm in a real zone right now of just running through just my favorite stuff. Right. Um, and I mean, there's, I try to not have reference records, but there are like a handful of things that I just love. That was going to be my next yeah. question is what is it that you turn to when you get that new piece of gear in the system yeah, where you're like, yeah. okay, I have to hear this. Well, I, I have a, a very weird obsession with David Crosby's first record. It's called if I could only remember my name. Um, Wally Hyder made it. It has every single amazing person from the Bay Area, early 70s on it. You know, the band on there is like Garcia, Neil Young, like Joni Mitchell. It's everybody. The engineering's insane. Um, but I always play that song Traction in the Rain on there for whatever reason. Um, then I'm big. I'm big John Martin fan. His record Solid Air is a big reference for yeah. me. Because that, you know, in the end of the day... Um, I lean towards more acoustic music. You know, I'm, I'm very into just what gives me the most people, mm-hmm. the most person, you know? So it's a really good singer, a lot of acoustic instruments, and just, like, great rooms, great mics. That That's what really... If I'm left to my own, that's kind of the sound that goes on. Uh, there's this this French record by this woman, Emmanuel Perrin, called Mason, Mason Rose from... Um, 1977, that's a huge reference disc for me. Um, then I, I always play uh, Heifetz doing the Sibelius Violin Concerto. 
play a lot of that. Uh, and then and then just stuff with just like huge bass, like lots of dance records, things like that. Kind of, I don't know. It's important, I guess, to kind of hit every little part of the spectrum in your reference stack. Uh, yeah, you want a sort of personal eclectic representation. Yeah, but, but you have to make sure you get some big kicks in there and some you know big strings, like whatever. Um, so I'm, I'm and tons of ECM stuff. That's the oh yeah yeah. I'm on an ECM tear with the Devores because it's just the craziest sounding thing ever. Matt's Ellertson's new one. Have you had a chance? I'm mostly like old ECM. Okay, like uh, I, I play that. Uh, Eberhard Weber fluid Russell like all the time, like the, the my neighbors must know. <laughs> you guys ever think about that? Do, do do you guys have do you share walls with anybody? I used to. We've been in a house now for almost two years, yeah, which is like, huge. Yeah, I get so paranoid that my a lot of my reference stuff is like super sad too. <laughs> like, like I have this fear that my neighbors just think like. Ooh, he's going through a tough time <laughs> playing that Joni Mitchell song 19 times tonight. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I guess there's, I'm trying to think, it's it's nice to think of things that are new as well. Um, I love Niels Fromm. I, mm-hmm. I listen to tons of him. Um, the new thing is where I usually get stumped. I'm so picky. Well, and and rightly so. I mean, I think it's, I mean, for me at least too, it's pretty tough to find something that's come out in the last year or two years or even three years that can hold a torch to a lot of the stuff that I've got from the 60s, 70s or 80s. Yeah, that's that's the problem is is I really, um, I'm not interested in anything that's derivative. So I just am myself when it comes to new stuff. Like I if if I can hear something and tell you exactly what that person was listening to, mm-hmm. I am not interested. No, yeah. not, no matter how good the song is, yeah. no matter how well it's made, not interested. So I'm at this point, I'm looking for like alien music. I'm I'm looking for what what is next. What have I never heard? Because if you go back through history, those are the records that are now the classics. They're the things that came out of nowhere. It's, and we're just not seeing that really anymore. We're not seeing it. You know, it it, it exists most in electronic music and yes. in hip hop. Yeah. Um, like my favorite producer in the world for like the past ten years has been Burial. Like, that's why not do that. Like, there there shouldn't be any rules anymore. Who and, are some of the people Burials worked with? Uh, well, Burial makes his own stuff. Okay. Um, he's he's the greatest. Like his stuff. I mean, it has no rules. There's no structure. There's, it's just like whatever he feels like. He's, he was totally anonymous for a long time. A lot of people thought it was Tom York, and a lot of people thought it was Fortet, but it is now proven that he's this other, he's a, just some dude. He's in, he's in good company. Yeah, well, and, and to kind of, in an amazing kind of trick to disprove that, he made a record with Tom York and Fortet, <laughs> <laughs> which is brilliant. Uh, and his stuff, it, it comes out on this label, Hyperdub, and it usually has no announcements at all. It just shows up. Um, a kind of guy like that is somebody who I'm super into. Do you, do you think that the, like, the slope of technology has somehow like rounded off 
an edge to creation. Hundred percent. So, so when when you look at like uh, the there's like a really juicy time in the s- late '60s to early '70s where like cl- the 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 ten poles of classic rock emerged, mm-hmm. and like the, in, in in a very simplistic term, you know, Jimi Hendrix was creating a lot of the effects that he was working with. And That's right. His sound was a hundred percent fresh because he created the technology. Now a kid can sit down with a laptop and do just about anything. Yeah, I, I mean, just, man, I think about this so much. I think um, I think one of the things, if you're into music, one of the things that makes right now the best is you have the ability to reference just anything. Like you and I, we can talk about the weirdest thing in the world right now and we can pull it up on the computer, right? That's great, but I think it's a bit of a curse to the creators of music. You know, Jimi Hendrix sounded like Jimi Hendrix because he didn't, you know, he, he got a little piece of inspiration from other things, but he had to fill in the rest of those gaps with something that was from him, right? And then you get something totally new. And I think we're in a really funny time right now where it's way too easy to reference things. So people are just remaking things, yeah, redoing stuff. I think it's so important to have those missing pieces. That's when things get exciting. And also and the joy of also just not knowing how to do something is is why we've been given a lot of the best music ever made. I once read an interview with Jack White where he when he said some of his early albums that were really impactful, you know, and to me was that he limited his tools yeah, to three. Yeah. He was doing three colors. It was an artistic move, of course. He had three yeah. colors. But he used restriction of tools to help him squeeze out more creativity. R- restriction is huge. Restriction is huge. And, and Jack, he's also so good at just saying something's done. You know, he doesn't kind of... you with, with all these tools now, you really run the risk of kind of engineering away any of the humanity. He would just be like, this is done. This is done. And in some of those early records, they they had this sense of raw sound yeah. that I had not heard in production for so yeah. long. That's a I think that 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 is one of the key things to a great record is um, that that fear that they might not make it to the end, you know. <laughs> Which is, I, I mean, I was listening to a, an amazing interview with um, I think her name is Suzanne Rogers, who was one of Prince's engineers, um, and she she would talk about Prince's whole thing is he he would. He would finish what he started that day only. He would never go back and work on stuff, right? So, I mean, whether that took three hours or, like, 18 hours, he just said it was done at the end of the day. And and if that's your approach, that record is always going to sound electric because there's that, that thrill of the discovery that goes into the making of it, and that translates. Like I was thinking, like a Stooges record, like you totally don't know if these guys know how to finish this song. Yeah. <laughs> so it makes you just listen to it, listen to it. And you start rooting for them almost. And I think Jack did the same thing. His records were always about to fall apart. And that's, that's the good stuff. This is a hobby that uh, so many people would uh, almost seem happy to have music get out of the way of the gear. It's yeah. like it's uh, completely flipped. Yes. to what the whole purpose of the gear was built for. I mean, music came first. That's right. Before there was any gear, we had music. Um, and at, sometimes I get a little bummed out at shows when you see yeah. how obsessed people are with 
just the gear. And it's like, they're not even listening to the music. There's no enjoyment for them in that. Do you ever worry that sometimes you're going to obsess a little bit too much about the gear or you're losing touch with the music? I, I really don't worry about that. I, I think, um, again, that's something to, to have gotten into this um, when I did with as many records as I do, it's just not going to happen. Like my, I'm so connected to the music and the gear for me is to just bring the most out of all this music that I can get, which is really like kind of how I ended up in that tone imports world. Cause, um, I, 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 I'll never forget the first time I went to Matt's for a demo. It was the first time I'd ever heard a demo with a record that I would listen to. Like he put on a Pharaoh Sanders record and yeah. I was just like, I'm buying it all. <laughs> 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 and I, I mean, no, I really try to kind of not talk shit about all this because I really, I just want people to be happy with whatever they're doing, whatever they're into. But you gotta kind of laugh at these shows. I've heard the same song seven times today and I don't even think it's that good of a song. <laughs> so... If they're happy with it, that's rad, but it's not for me. These shows, I mean, you, you, you do hear like little bits and pieces of gear. It's like, oh, that's, that's good. That's good. Mm -hmm. And I, and I, again, I'm, I know this is all a matter of taste. So none, nothing that I'm saying is definitive, but these shows generally make me really excited to go home to my system. Mm. That's a pretty good point. Yeah. Um, I'm also, you know, we were talking about restriction. I, I love simplicity, man. And, um, it stripped down. Yeah. I like to strip it all down. Um, that's how I can kind of hear what all these things are doing. Like a lot of these systems, I have no idea what's doing what, like right. I'm terrified of whatever this cable's doing. <laughs> <I'm getting ter> <laughs> like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> I've never seen one of these, like. You know, I can't find the music in this mm -hmm. visually or to my ears, you know. Whereas with your system at home, you can point to something and you know exactly what, it, what, it's, what it's bringing to the table. Yes. Yeah. We didn't talk about turntables. I love turntables. Well, sure. Let's talk a little bit about turntables. I know, I know for a fact that you've got a new one. Uh, I got, yeah. Well, it took me a, a, quite a while to build. I've had it for about a year now. But I, I got an EMT 930 and I love it so much. That's a legendary broadcast table. Very and legendary. And it weighs a ton. Weighs a ton. A lot of angels involved in getting me this thing. Um, a dude who I kind of just... I, <laughs> so I, I have no... None of my friends that are into this stuff uh, were into it before I turned them on mm -hmm. to it. But I, and I do have like a couple like audio buds that I met through just buying stuff, selling stuff. And... Um, the guy I bought my 301 from has become a friend and uh, he's in Minneapolis. We've never met, talk on the phone sometimes, always send him each other pictures of gear. And uh, he knew I, I'd been sort of obsessing over an EMT and he turned me on to this guy named Stefano who seems to know everybody. He's got a website called Two Good Ears. It's like a big um, idler drive modifier. So he turned me on to him, who had a friend that was selling a 930. So I bought it from Stefano, had it sent to um, Hansa Hi-Fi in the Netherlands to get it kind of rebuilt. They made me a uh, power supply, all got crated, sent to, sent to L.A., and um, it was about a year ago. 
and I love this turntable so much. You're going to have to bury me with it. <laughs> Are you running an EMT card on it? I sure am, yeah. I've got two two arms on there. I've got a TSD-15 for stereo and an OFD-15 for mono, and I'm using an Auditorium 23 T2 homage step-up transformer. I think that's what it was that was new to the mix. That is new. That yeah, we've I, been talking about. Yeah, yeah, I had this standard EMT uh, step up from A23 for for a while that was amazing and then I was just I, I mean I, I've really ran the gauntlet with cartridges but I think the EMT is my that's my guy um, there's certain things that others do better, certain things others do worse, this for, for what I'm into this is the best overall thing, overall cartridge, so I was in signing off on that i, I felt it was okay to throw down a ton of money to get like the most insane step up for it to be fair though having i've had the the standard step up yeah from from them for you it's amazing and then hearing a t2 version it, yeah. the thing that came to mind right away was that line from apocalypse now where he's talking about <laughs> Uh, a young Lawrence Fishburne in Vietnam saying the light in space had really put the zap on his head. <laughs> and that's exactly how I felt when they yeah. switched over the step ups. That's it was right. just like a sonic boom. Like yeah. the space that it created around all the notes. That's right. It was too big. Yeah. I was it's, frightened. It's, it's amazing. I mean, it, it's totally insane to spend that much money on a little box. But if, if, if you're listening to as much music as I am and you think you know what your lifelong cartridge is, go for it. Yeah. Because it, it's the best thing you can do to that cartridge. Sounds like a business expense to me. <laughs> it's all a business expense, which is <laughs> terrifying to my accountant. <laughs> I'd just like to thank Zach Cowie for being brave and coming to this hotel room. <laughs> <laughs> you're free to go. Thank you. But your organs are staying. <laughs> <laughs> and a big thanks to Brian, as always, for putting together this podcast. Thanks, thanks a lot, thanks, guys. Man.